Hey guys, before this episode starts, I want to talk about some pretty cool news. Oki Investigations now has its own website. It's truecrime.blog, and it is a running blog for crime stories and for this show. So if you're a true crime buff and you want to see some cool things that we gathered while researching each show, including a like timeline of events that we put together, uh, newspaper clippings, court documents, and much, much more. Come check us out at truecrime.blog. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Oki Investigations. This show is produced by Highly Illogical. In this episode, we're going to discuss the case of two sisters who went missing 35 years ago, almost to this day. The family has no answers to their question of where did Fawn and Rosalind Abel go? What happened? Why? But first, if you are a first-time listener, and you should be since this is our first episode, uh, to experience this podcast to its finest, hit that subscribe button, and when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. Then just head on over to our Facebook page, and this is where I'm going to be posting my case files on everything I was able to dig up on these particular cases. Here we're going to discuss things together and maybe you can come up with your own theories of what happened and we can discuss those as well. Sometimes I'll be posting full interviews, statements, pictures, police documents, and in cases like these uh, we'll be posting you know, news articles, uh, just about anything that we can dig up, social media posts, we'll have lots of speculation. You can find us at facebook.com slash Investigations, all one word. For this episode, I broke the seal on one of my most guilty of pleasures, flavored coffee. Since quarantine, I've been on a worldwide trip of different coffees today. I made a trip over to my local Winco Foods, and yeah, I picked up some red brick coffee that's flavored with creamy caramel, and I've got to say, I'm very happy this morning. Uh, you can call me a happy boy. Big, big thank you to the people over there at the Red Brick Coffee. I am a fan. When you're working on a true crime podcast, there are several different directions you can take your first episode. You can start with a serial killer or some grisly murder. This episode, I started researching missing person cases. And I went to the Charlie Project website. It's a wonderful resource if you're ever wanting to just look into uh, anything like missing persons. They have a lot of resources available. And I highly recommend going and checking them out. I did a search, I was just looking in Oklahoma, and I saw uh, Fawn Abel's uh, case, it was on the very top, and right underneath her was Rosalind's, and as soon as I clicked it, and read just the opening stuff about it, I thought, wow, there's a lot to this, there's a lot to unpack here, and there's not, there's, there's, you know, it's just a couple paragraphs, but when you start digging into this, there is a lot to this case. But what we're going to do first is we're going to pretty much start from the beginning. On July 25th, 1985, Fawn and Rosalind Abel decided that they were going to go looking for jobs. 
they did not inform anyone of where they were going. They didn't say, you know, we were looking on this side of the city or we were going to this town, nothing like that. Um, the only thing that is known is that they definitely left with somebody because their brother was getting home that afternoon and they they were leaving at that time. And as they left, the last thing he heard them say was, hurry up, they're waiting for us down the street. Now, that to me suggests that there's someone else that knows something because whoever they are is going to be the next step in kind of trying to figure this thing out. Now, the next thing on record to have happened is that the family came in on the 28th and then filed a missing persons report with the Bethany Police Department. Now, a lot of people, especially our younger generation, might look at that and question the uh, length of time it took to actually report this. But you got to remember, this is the 1980s. This is the era of give it 48 hours and let's see if they come back. Now, in a missing persons case, we know now that the first 72 hours is the most important. You got to get as much information out there as possible. These, these girls left with somebody. If this was all over the news, if there was an Amber Alert, if, if all this information came out saying, hey, these girls left with someone, we don't know who they are. That person might have stepped forward and said, hey, I took them to such and such business and they were applying for jobs in the area and I left them there. It wouldn't be that unusual for these girls to maybe hitchhike or just accept a ride from an acquaintance. And that is a big difference of what, you know, we know today as stranger danger and you know, get away from the guy that drives the big, creepy white van. So now, according to the original report, uh, Fawn Abel was the one that was reported as a uh, runaway, basically. And it was on the same date, uh, July 28th, is when they were entered into the NCIC database. Now, if you're ever wondering what the NCIC is, it's the National Crime Information Center. That is actually, uh, I think it was 1960s, later 60s, they were coming up with ways that uh, different police agencies can help share information. That way, uh, more could be known and passed along nationwide, basically. So it was a very important thing, and it's still used today. Now, Fawn Abel was 15 years old at the time of her disappearance, so she was listed as a runaway. They didn't have reason to suspect foul play. I don't know why it wasn't looked into further, though. That's very um, unusual, I would suspect. Now, in 2013, the Daily Oklahoman did a piece on uh this case and they interviewed lieutenant warfield and where he he brought out the case file and he was able to uh show what uh originally happened and what what kind of happened uh since those initial reports and one of the things that he discussed was someone dropped the ball 
on this case when they they were entered into this the NCIC database and but it was never I guess renewed or somehow it was removed from that database. Now I don't know if that was the fault of the police department or the NCIC. Uh, that is neither here nor there at this point. That's so many years ago. I mean, the people who were involved at that time are probably no longer uh, at that department. But Lieutenant Warfield actually does say that uh, among the updates that they may have on this case, one of the things is a family member who didn't want to be identified at the time asked if any bones matching the girls have ever been found at the Stitchcomb Wildlife Refuge at Lake Overholster. Now this wildlife refuge is just west of the Wiley Post Airport and north of Lake Overholster. It is about 1,000 acres of just wooded land. Uh, there's a park, a lot of people go kayaking up in there, and honestly it's not an unusual question to ask the police because this is the largest park that's really closest to Bethany at the time uh, and currently still. So according to the police though, there have been no unidentified remains uh, found there. And if they are there, then finding them at this point may be a pretty difficult task. Not impossible. Not impossible at all. I have read of a case here recently actually i think it was march of this year where a cadaver dog was brought in to i believe it was in los angeles and they were searching for remains in a decades old case and they went as far as they started breaking up the asphalt of a uh, parking lot so it got it really makes you wonder you know um could something similar be done in this case? Now, obviously, the people in Los Angeles had a more localized area that they were searching, and we're talking about a thousand-acre park. In this case, police are going to need a more localized area to look in. Personally, the my choice would be if I didn't know where to start, I would I would look back at 1985, and I would look and see what roadways went through there there is uh, a couple roads like county line road river road and a few others that run through there and i would start there i would see if those roads existed at that time what their kind of makeup was and you know um walk it see see what happens see what you can find uh, that that's where I would start if someone's going to bury a body typically they're going to start somewhere that's easy accessible and somewhere that they're not going to be noticed and they're not moving just one person they're moving two people so that's going to be something that's going to be difficult for anyone to pull off and just not be noticed but we're also looking at this case 35 years later if they haven't been found there now by now what's the likelihood of you know someone just stumbling upon them or a cadaver dog even picking up that scent there's a lot of different factors here at play and that's why it is so devastating to this case that the police 
did not look at this as a crime in the beginning because just getting through this now is just so difficult. It's, it's really tragic. Other interesting things about this case is that both Fawn and Rosalind's social security numbers have not been used since they disappeared. So you have to kind of wonder, you know, what end happened here. Either the girls have run away or were taken and they haven't used their social security numbers or something terrible has truly happened in this case. Michelle Cottle, who was a family friend, actually used to live with the family. She's done a few interviews. She's actually been really the face of finding the girls up until 2015, whenever she passed away. Uh, she ran a Facebook page almost daily updates i was very impressed doing my research on this of how committed she was to getting this solved and bringing these girls home she did that i believe from about 2011 to 2015 uh, there were several things that i had seen from what her theories were that are um, kind of memorialized on that page is she believed that maybe the girls were hitchhiking and just met with somebody that was crazy and they met in a fortunate end that way. Apparently it wasn't unusual for the girls to hitchhike at that time. Now for this next part, I want to stress that we are speculating at this point. We have um, no real proof of anything except one person's story and their thoughts on all of this. Now, Fawn and Rosalind have an older sister, Lorley. She gave an interview back in 2014 to radio host Bob Carson, and we will have this link uh, to the full interview on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Investigations. Now, what she had to say was very interesting. She states that when she was a little girl in the 1960s. Her father kidnapped her and her sister. Um, he was having a dispute with his ex, and he fled over state lines. Uh, she said they went over several states. Uh, nothing was done to her father, mind you. All this back then was just a dispute between two parents. It's not as taken as seriously as it is today. She states that as she got older... She was then raped by her father many times throughout her life. One such incident, she was crying afterwards, and her stepmother asked her what was wrong. And she told her the truth, and she said, this is the only time I told the truth. She was then slapped in the face and told to stay away from her man. So, nothing great going on there. Now fast forward two weeks before the disappearances in 1985. Uh, she moved into a new apartment. She's out of town and she gets a call from Rosalind who tells her that she may be appearing on her doorstep soon. Laura Lee says that it would be great and that her apartment would be ready in a couple of weeks. She had no way of knowing that after those two weeks she would never see her sisters again. 
Now, this is a little more speculation on her part. Uh, she states that her brother's original story about the disappearances was that when the girls went out, they were look, going out to look for jobs. And apparently the story changed to they went out with friends. And according to the police now, it looks like that it's back to being... Uh, they went out, as he got home, they went out to go look for jobs. Now, I don't know if there's any official record of the um, the story of them just going out with friends. So, I think maybe, what I was reading, maybe the Charlie website, the Charlie Project website, might have reflected that at one time. But it has been since corrected. Now... Lorley's story might explain a couple things here. According to the police in the Daily Oklahoma interview, they were asked by the brother if any investigations are still going on, are they looking for their sisters, what is going on. And this was pretty much news to the Bethany Police Department about these disappearances because at this time, uh, all the cops now, I mean, it's a new, uh, you know, new new personnel and nothing no on, ongoing investigations have been going on so they did some digging and the only uh, documents that they're able to find were on microfilm so and if you look at it there was no report made for Rosalind um, Fawn she had a report and that's because she was 15 years old so they were just looked at as, as runaways but if there was ongoing investigation, then you would think that, oh, you know, a year or two later, well, they haven't turned up. They're not using their socials. Let's see what's going on. But that didn't happen. Now, over time, the family had to wonder what was going on. What happened to these two girls? And one would think that they would go back and make sure this was still being investigated. That things were being done right. As a father myself, I would be calling every single day to remind the police that my children are still not home where they should be. No one has seen or heard from them and something is not right. I would just never accept that they are just gone and let this case, let, let that case set for decades. However, I also can't say that this is definite proof that their father had anything to do with this case either. Unfortunately, their father, Orville Sr., passed away. He lived his life without having to answer any of these questions. And because of this, we can only speculate to what his involvement might have been. That's, that's unless something else actually happened and or there's somebody out there that maybe knows the truth. Now, here are some statistics that I thought were pretty interesting. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, it's a it's really a wonderful wonderful organization uh, they have some missing children statistics and this is for 2019 now these are we're breaking down the different case types okay 
So there were right around 29,000 cases of missing children in 2019. 91% of that 29,000 was endangered runaways. That's probably very similar to the way it was in 1985 and probably why a lot of police departments at the time saw missing children as well let's wait and see uh four percent were family abductions so maybe something you know similar that's happened case with Lorley. she's abducted by her father ran from state to state that's not as uncommon as you would think uh 4% of those were critically missing young adults these are people by between the age of 18 and 20 years old less than 1% are non family abductions it's pretty low on the likelihood scale there but not unheard of mind you there was a suspected serial killer um by the name of Royal Russell Long, who I guess spent time between Wyoming and Oklahoma. He was a truck driver. He was also a carny uh, for the state fair in Oklahoma. Now, not a lot is known about this case, or is it publicly available? Um, it's just one of those things that's a, it's a time before the internet, and you just gotta do a little bit more digging and this is something that I wanted to look into because I, I didn't even think about putting these together until kind of last minute. So Long was working at the Oklahoma State Fairgrounds, and in, this is in 1981. And he helps June Kinsley and uh, Cinda Pallet, uh, helps them get jobs there. And... During the course of working there, the last that these two girls are seen is when they're getting into Long's Pontiac Grand Prix. Now, this is a car that ended up in El Paso, Texas, abandoned, and the police had seized the vehicle and found, I guess, like, evidence that... Uh, one of the two children might have been in the back of uh, the trunk of the car. Now let's fast forward to 1984. We're in South Dakota. Long is back to truck driving. And he picks up two girls um, that are hitchhiking. He then, um, at gunpoint... He beat one of the girls and then raped her friend. Now, the one he beaten, she had actually escaped and was able to flee to get help. Uh, by the time police arrived on the scene, Long and the girl he raped had disappeared at this point. They knew that the jig was up and he went on the run. Now, Long wasn't caught until sometime in 1985 despite all my searching i cannot say for sure when he was arrested i believe he was arrested in albuquerque new mexico sometime in 1985 i 
just have to do a little bit more digging on this and probably why I'm going to call this episode just a part one because there's enough to this that we should probably look more into this uh, later on and you know if if the information we find you know that isn't that uh, enough for a full episode what we can do also is we can post it on our facebook page reminder facebook.com slash oki investigations all one word i i i can post something there we can do some updates and kind of see what we could figure out if long was arrested after the di- disappearances of these two girls I would say that there might be a chance there's a connection here. It's just depending on where Long was at the time. Since he was running from the police, that's probably not very well-known information. And Long died in prison in 1993. So it's one of those things that, you know, it's, it's going to be hard to put together. With something like this, you have to ask yourself, what is more likely? What happened to Rosalind and Fawn? If you look at the statistics near the same time, I mean, less than 10 years apart, we've got a report from the U.S. Department of Justice. Now, murder in families. This is by John Dawson and Patrick Largan. They're both PhDs. And they indicate that 16% of murder victims were members of the defendant's family. The remainder were murders by friends or acquaintances. That's 64%. Or by strangers, 20%. So, it's far more likely that these girls were murdered by someone that was a friend or an acquaintance or someone they didn't know versus someone that's a family member. It's not unheard of. It happens, which is why some of these questions should have been asked Orville Sr. Well, it's really my belief that the only way we're ever going to know what happened in this case is if someone were to step forward with knowledge of this case. Uh, If you do know anything about this case, I highly suggest you contact the Bethany Police Department. Phone number is 405-789-2323. Now, something from the archives of Oklahoma history and the Daily Oklahoman. This is back in December 16th, 1910. And if you're keeping score, that is 110 years ago. Now, the way this article starts out is the rope to be used in wife murder has ended many lives. And then it also says history is gruesome. And yes, yes it is. Now, this is something I really didn't know about the history of Oklahoma was up until this time, this rope was special because it was used in every 
execution in our state's history up to this point. So the article goes on to say the rope which will be used in the execution of John Hopkins, convicted wife slayer on December 30th, will be the same which has been employed in the execution of every man legally hung since statehood. With the single exception of another John Hopkins who was executed in Miami two years ago for the murder of his sweetheart, Lena Craig. The sheriff is preparing to erect a gallows in the recess in the wall of the courthouse. The death watch will be placed on Hopkins within the next few days. I'm ready, declares Hopkins, Thursday, when visited by the sheriff. Go ahead and carry out the mandate of the court, I, and don't worry about me. I am no good to myself, my children, or anybody else. My children all have good homes now. That's all I care about. I'm willing to die and look forward with pleasure to the day of my execution. Pretty crazy story. So this man is convicted of killing his wife. And back then it was very important, I guess, to travel the, <laughs> the rope that was used to hang all of the, uh, those to be put to death in the state of Oklahoma, it was, it was very important at that time that the same rope be used. That will be all for this episode of Oki Investigations. Join us next week as we look into the local macabre. Make sure you subscribe and also join us on Facebook to discuss these cases further. Uh, you can find us at facebook.com slash Oki Investigations. Goodbye for now.